In our passage this morning, which I just read, John 11, 45 to 54, we observe the response of the witnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus. So a dead man has just come out of the tomb. How do those who witness the event respond? This is the main focus of our passage this morning. This is what these verses are mainly about. However, in order for us to properly understand and evaluate the response of these people who saw Lazarus raised from the dead and then the the response of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin who heard secondhand about the raising of Lazarus, in order to us, for us to properly understand these responses and evaluate these responses, let's examine first what this passage says about the plan of God concerning the death of Jesus. Now, this is not the main idea in this passage. The main idea is the response of these people. But in this passage, look at verses 51 and 52. We do see something of God's plan concerning the death of Jesus. John gives us the inspired commentary that Jesus is going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, he says, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. There's just a little, it's all, you could almost miss it as you're reading through this narrative. The focus is very much on the response of the people to the raising of Lazarus. And John just has almost this throwaway line that, yes, Jesus is going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, at this point, never mind the question of whether that was the intended meaning of Caiaphas or not and what he said just before that. We'll we'll come to that later on. Never mind that. But John is unmistakably clear that it is God's plan that Jesus will die, the one for the many. He is going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That is unmistakably the plan of God as given to us by the narrator here in John 11, 51 and 52. There are three components of that statement that I want to examine briefly as we make our way through. First, Jesus' death is going to be substitutionary. As Leon Morris notes, either the nation will die or Jesus will die. Either the children of God scattered abroad will die, or Jesus will die. This is the logic of this section. It's impossible to read it any other way. Jesus is going to die for the nation. Jesus is going to die for the sake of the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus' death is going to be substitutionary. Second, Jesus' death is going to be not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. In this passage, it's very obvious that the nation refers to the Jews. And therefore, the people who are referred to in addition to the nation cannot be Jews. It makes no sense to say that Jesus will die for the Jews and also for the Jews. Therefore, 
We are to infer that the children of God scattered abroad are not Jews scattered abroad, but are Gentiles. That Jesus is going to die for the nation, which is obviously in this context the Jews, and also for the children of God scattered abroad. The implication here is that those are Gentiles. And so Jesus is going to die a substitutionary death, not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. Consequently, and thirdly, the effect of Jesus' death is going to be a unification of the Jewish and the Gentile children of God. Jesus' death will, quote, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is a repetition then of the concept that Jesus stated back in John chapter 10 and verse 16. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, one people of God comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles for whom Jesus died a substitutionary death. If I may sum up and synthesize these three aspects of Jesus' death that we see in this passage and expand on them a little, the plan of God is this. There are those designated sheep who are yet to be brought out. There are those designated as children who are yet to be gathered, both from among the Jews and also from among the Gentiles. And either they... The sheep, in the language of John 10, or the children, in the language of John 11, either they will die, or Jesus will die for them. Thankfully, it's the latter. Jesus came to die for them. For the sheep. For the children of God. Both Jewish and Gentile in order to bring them, as John ten sixteen says, in order to save them from perishing, as John 11, verses 50 to 52 imply, in order to unite them, that is the sheep, the children, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, in order to unite them to one another under him. This is the great plan of God. Through Christ to rescue those whom God has chosen to be His sheep. Through Christ to rescue those whom God has chosen to be His children. By means of Christ's substitutionary death for them. After living a righteous life in order to earn for them the righteousness required to dwell with God. It was God's plan that Jesus also die for them. For the sheep. For the children. In order that he could justly spare them the death that they deserved for their sin. This is what Jesus came to do. The result of this plan, the result of the work of Christ, is a unified people of God taken from both the Jews and the Gentiles. One flock 
under one shepherd in the language of John 10. One family of God under one father with one elder brother through whom we, many sons, have been brought to glory in the language of John 11, borrowing also a little bit from Hebrews. This is what Jesus came to do. This is what his words tell us he came to do. This is what his... Pardon me. This is what his words tell us he came to do. And his works corroborate his words. He who says he has power over death, who tells us that I'm going to lay down my life, No one takes it from me, but I'm going to lay it down willingly. And I have authority to take it up again. He who tells us these things, who says that he has power over death, demonstrates that he does indeed have power over death as he calls forth Lazarus from the grave. John 3.16 says that those who believe will not perish, but have everlasting life. However, as John 3.18 says, whoever does not believe is condemned already. There is nothing that unbelievers have to do in order to get condemned. They are not on probation, as if God is watching them to see whether or not they deserve condemnation. The scripture says that they are condemned already. Let's consider now the fact of unbelief. It is a reality that not all are going to believe in Jesus. We just talked about the plan of God concerning the death of Jesus. That Jesus came as a rescuer. That whoever believes in him would not perish. Jesus came to live and to die and to rise again for the sheep, for the children. Not all are going to embrace this. Not all are going to embrace Jesus as the rescuer of condemned men. Some are going to insist that they're not really condemned already. That there is no wrath of God coming on account of sin. I don't even, I don't need to be saved. Therefore, Jesus is not my Savior. Others will admit the wrath of God and God's just condemnation of sinners, but they will not believe that they need to be rescued. Maybe other people need to be rescued, but not them. Or they will not believe that it is only through Jesus that they may be rescued. Perhaps they grant that, yes, The wrath of God is coming on account of sin, and yes, I need to be rescued, but perhaps I can rescue myself by my own good works. They think by this means they might be able to rescue themselves, which would mean that they could hang on to some glory for themselves, some sense of accomplishment, rather than humbling themselves at the feet of Christ. They wouldn't deign to say, nothing in my hands I bring. They don't like that kind of religion. They prefer a something in my hand, at least something. At least a little something in my hands I bring. 
Yeah, grace to an extent, but like 99% grace or less. I gotta bring a little something. Or some people disbelieve, thinking that Jesus is perhaps just one of many ways to be rescued from what is wrong with us. For them, it's the exclusive claims of Jesus that they balk at. I am the way, the truth, the life. Whatever the reason though, whatever the specific nature of the unbelief, the fact is that not all are going to believe in Jesus. And we see that general truth borne out specifically in this specific case here in John 11. Look at verses 45 and 46. Many believed in him. Verses 40, verse 45. Many believed in him. Good. Wonderful. These are some who are rescued by Jesus. These are some of the children, some of the sheep whom Jesus came to bring, to gather. But, verse 46 goes on to say, some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Of course, they were not going to evangelize the Pharisees. That's not the sense of it. Rather, they were going to tattletale on Jesus. They're going to rat or snitch on Jesus. That's the sense of it. And so we see, first of all, just the fact of unbelief in this passage. Borno, in a very specific incident, just a case study of that general truth that not everyone's going to believe in Jesus. The fact of unbelief is before us in this passage. Let's consider now the absurdity of unbelief. Can you see that something is wrong with this world? Can't you see that death is an enemy that stalks us all? The scythe of the Grim Reaper is ever busy, ever active, harvesting one by one each and every one of Adam's descendants. Though obviously on a much larger scale. Death is something like a Monday morning hanging over us in the midst of a blissful weekend that we wish would never end. We know it's coming. We don't really want to think about it, but soon enough it will be here. Death is something like the flight home from a vacation or a visit with family members or friends living overseas that you wish would never end. There's that date on the calendar that you know on the 12th or the 31st or whatever, you've got to catch your flight home. And it's there and it's kind of hanging there and you're just enjoying the meantime, trying not to think about it, but there it is hanging over you perpetually. Death is something like the difficult conversation you know full well your spouse is going to raise with you at some point and you're trying to avoid having in the meantime. You know, at some point, you're going to have to talk about whatever it is, but for now, you just try to ignore it, try to avoid it, try to escape it. Death is like the impending nightfall when you're a little child scared of the dark, causing you stress as the shadows deepen toward sundown. 
Death is this ever-present reality which we so often push to the back of our minds, telling ourselves ignorance is bliss. We don't want to face it, but isn't it obvious that it is real? Isn't it obvious to all of us that death is real? And isn't it obvious that it is relevant to each and every one of us? Death is not just a problem that some people out there have to deal with. Death is not just a problem that the elderly have to deal with. Death is not just a problem that the sick have to deal with. We know full well that you can be as healthy as a horse and be cut down in the prime of your life by some kind of accident or tragedy. One of us or more of us may well be dead by the end of this service today, let alone by the end of this calendar day. We all know it could happen, and we all know it will happen eventually. And doesn't the very fact that something so awful as death is real and relevant and inescapable in our world, doesn't that show you that there is something very wrong with this world? It seems such an obvious point. Something so horrendous as death is an inescapable reality, a relevant thing for all of us, each and every one of us. None of us can escape it. It's looming over all of us. It is the end of all men, the rich, the poor, from whatever demographic. All of us die. Doesn't that show you that there is something very wrong with this world? Doesn't everybody really know that? When we won't admit that, then isn't it just like putting off Monday morning or the flight home? Given this, if this is true, that there is something so obviously, something so manifestly wrong with this world, of which death is probably the primary symptom, wouldn't it make a great deal of sense then to embrace he who called forth a dead man from the tomb? At least, at least to carefully reconsider and reevaluate your negative view of him. Let's say you're really, really prejudiced to someone and you think they're bad. And you think that they're against God. And they're against life and flourishing. Against all that is right and holy and good. They're not on God's team. Even though they say they are. And then they often raise someone from the dead. Wouldn't it be sensible at least to reevaluate and reconsider this perspective that you have formed on this person? If not, to embrace it at once. And yet we see such hardened unbelief in this passage that even though a man rises from the dead, they will not believe. And isn't that exactly what Jesus taught us is the nature of unbelief in Luke 16, 31. 
he puts this statement in the mouth of Abraham, but it's Jesus telling the story. So the authority of Jesus is behind it. The endorsement of Jesus is behind this statement. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Those who will not listen to the voice of God in the scriptures, teaching and instructing about the Christ in order that we might come to him and might have life. Remember we read at the beginning of our service, John 5.39, these scriptures testify of me. You search them diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they testify of me, and yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. If people look at the scriptures read the scriptures, study the scriptures, and do not respond to the scriptures with faith in Christ. If they persist in their unbelief, though God speaks to them in the scriptures about His Son, about the Messiah, gradually revealing first what He is and then who He is, as the storyline of Scripture unfolds, if someone reads the Bible and does not listen, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. No matter how much evidence is presented, even a resurrection won't do it. Their problem then is not a rational one, but a moral one. Let me state that again. Unbelief is not a rational problem, but a moral problem. We do not believe, not because we cannot rationally believe. We do not believe because against all reason, we will not believe. This is what the scriptures call suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And this is the natural state of every man. And we see that general truth again. A general truth borne out in a specific instance. Here in John chapter 11. The people respond to a resurrection. With an unbelief so irrationally fixed so irrationally inflexible that they will not even pause to reconsider and reevaluate their assessment of Jesus. The unbelieving witnesses go straight to the Pharisees to tell on Jesus, and the unbelieving Sanhedrin immediately plots to kill Jesus, rather than going back to the Scriptures to reconsider in light of this new evidence presented to them that maybe they have formed the wrong assessment and have misunderstood the arc of Scripture and the identity of the Messiah and the nature of His work and so forth. Unbelief is irrational. There may be genuine questions, genuine considerations and reservations in the hearts and minds of unbelievers, but there are rational answers to each and every one of them. 
true. Sometimes the rational answer is that this is too big for us to understand. Like, how can God be one and three at the same time? But no one persists in unbelief after rationally considering the claims of Christianity because Christianity is not rational enough for them. Rather, those who persist in unbelief after rationally considering Christianity are those who irrationally suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Those who simply will not believe, no matter how much evidence is presented. We see this dynamic play over and over again in our modern day also, as we see it play out here in John chapter 11. And as the scriptures tell us, will be the case, generally speaking. So, we have seen so far in this passage the plan of God concerning the death of Jesus. The fact of unbelief in the face of Jesus' works and words which together present a compelling case that he is who he says he is. The fact of unbelief in the face of this and the absurdity of unbelief in the face of this. Let's consider now the futility of unbelief. When the unbelievers go to the Pharisees to snitch on Jesus, the Pharisees convene a formal meeting of what our translation calls the council. This is the Sanhedrin. D.A. Carson explains that the highest judicial body in the land was the Sanhedrin, which under Roman authority controlled all Jewish internal affairs. It was simultaneously a judiciary a legislative body, and through the high priest, an executive. In Jesus' day, the members of the Sanhedrin were dominated by the chief priests. Virtually all the priests were Sadducees. The Pharisees constituted an influential minority. Most of them were scribes. The rest of the members were elders, landed aristocrats, which I think means aristocrats of land, of mixed theological views. So the Pharisees call a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. This formal meeting of the Sanhedrin seems actually to have been the actual trial of Jesus, which Jesus wasn't even present for. Because later on we read that their minds were already made up to kill Jesus. So here is where the Sanhedrin actually deliberates about what to do with Jesus. And what is their conclusion? That they should kill him. Again, what irrationality. This is one who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament to a T. This is one who demonstrates by his words and deeds an incontestable claim to be the Messiah. So what absurdity that they're, they, the religious leaders who profess to be Jews, who believe the Old Testament, what an absurdity that they decide that the best thing to do is to kill Jesus. 
yeah, I've already spoken to the irrationality of belief, so let's move on from that and look at the futility of this. They decide to kill Jesus. And in doing so, they line themselves up against God. This is Psalm 2 and verse 2 playing itself out. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's basically impossible to see a more direct fulfillment of that than what happens here at the end of John 11. It's literally the rulers taking counsel together. And what is their conclusion? That they should kill Jesus. So they're against the Lord and against his anointed. Caiaphas speaks in verses 49 and 50 with malice in his heart to his peers. You know nothing at all. The arrogance is palpable. What sort of man speaks to his peers in this way? And he goes on. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. The concern of the Sanhedrin, as stated in verse 48, was that if we let Jesus go, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. What a, what a horrid thought. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, Jesus will become too popular. And that will be disruptive to the mutual understanding that the Sanhedrin has with the Roman authorities. You see, they like the status quo. Remember, they were the governing body, as Carson told us a few moments ago, that controlled all Jewish internal affairs. Yes, they were ultimately answerable to the Romans, but within certain parameters, they could basically do what they want, as long as it didn't get too out of hand from a Roman perspective. The Jews actually enjoyed more freedom of religion than most Roman colonies. And so they have, they're allowed to maintain their temple, they're allowed to maintain their religious system. These men are allowed to retain their seats of power. If Jesus gets too popular, it's going to be kind of disruptive, you see. And they're going to lose both their place and their nation. Of course, Rome is not going to relinquish Israel as a colony. What they're going to do is, is bring down their thumb a little harder upon Israel. And at least desecrate the temple again, if not destroy it entirely. And remove these men from their seats of power. And so their nation as they know it will be lost. Their uniqueness within the Roman Empire will be lost and they'll just be like any other Roman colony. So they are here provoked by political considerations to, as they deliberate what to do with Jesus. And it's to, this, to these political considerations that Caiaphas responds. It is better just to get rid of one man than that the whole nation should suffer. And notice also that he says, it is better for you. Verse 50. That one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should suffer. And so Caiaphas' response is very pragmatic. 
It's going to be bad for Israel if Jesus gets too popular. The Romans are going to bring down their thumb a little harder on us. And our religious system is going to be disrupted. We're not going to retain our seats of power. So not only is it going to be good for the whole nation, but it's not going to be good for us either. So we should just get rid of this one guy, is basically what Caiaphas is saying. But what he says, the specific words that he chooses, are ironic. He says... It is better for you that one man should die for the people. Jesus, or pardon me, Caiaphas didn't speak of Jesus atoning death. One man dying for the people. That wasn't the intent. Rather, he spoke of a politically expedient death. One man instead of the people. But unbeknownst to him, his words were loaded with more meaning, the scripture tells us. It was a double entendre. There was a dual sense to it. At a purely human level, the rulers would gather themselves together against the Lord and against his anointed in order to do away with his anointed so that they could preserve the status quo. And yet, in the very action that they take, God is rescuing the world through the death of his anointed and irreversibly undoing the status quo. They killed Jesus so that everything could stay the same. But through Jesus' death, God makes everything new. And so, you see, Caiaphas means this a certain way, but God superintends and overrules it to communicate something more than he Intends or is even aware of. And this is what God does with the words and the actions of the wicked. God overrules and superintends even the words and the actions of the wicked in order to accomplish his purposes. Listen, just as it was in Joseph's day, he said to his brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Caiaphas meant his words for evil, but God meant them for good. Caiaphas meant the death of Jesus for evil, but God meant it for good. So Caiaphas here honors a prophecy of the rescue of the sheep of God, a prophecy of the gathering of the children of God. And when they actually follow through with this wicked plan, it is the actual rescue of the sheep of God and the children of God. Therefore, unbelief is not only absurd, but also futile. God's plans and purposes will prevail over your suppression of the truth. Just like an ostrich putting his head in the sand doesn't actually make the predator go away. Neither does you burning your head in the sand make the truth of Christ go away. 
The plan of God concerning the death of Jesus is to gather to himself a people comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles. Unbelief is a fact. Not all are going to be beneficiaries of that plan. Some will reject this proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. Unbelief is a fact. But unbelief is both absurd and futile. Disbelief is not rational, nor will it change or overcome the plan of God. So I will just make one application, but break it down into two sub-points. Just one application as we draw, as we press towards a conclusion. And the application is belief. Unbelief is a fact, but it is absurd and it's futile. So obviously, belief. Believe in the first place. Consider that the Sanhedrin adopted both an absurd and a futile path motivated by their own self-interest. The preservation of the status quo. Many unbelievers disbelieve in order to preserve the status quo. They just like their life the way it is. And Jesus would just be too disruptive. If I believe in Jesus, I'm going to lose my place. As they were concerned, we're going to lose our place and our nation. Many unbelievers are just unbelieving because they want to maintain the status quo. But here's the here's a question for you to consider. Did the unbelief of the Sanhedrin actually maintain the status quo? No. It definitely didn't. It definitely didn't. The death of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus by his people, culminated ultimately in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. It's not as if this Sanhedrin could just go on indefinitely rejecting God, rejecting the Christ, and that everything would just be fine. Everything would just remain status quo forever. The plan of God presses forward. Remember, it's futile to disbelieve. It doesn't actually change what God's plan is. And so not only does it not make sense, it's, just, it's also just futile. But it doesn't make sense because you are going to die. And so to reject the one who has the keys to death and Hades because you like the status quo, it doesn't make sense, that's absurd. To ignore the one who could rescue you from death and hell because you just would find it a little too disruptive to have dealings with him. 
You're too busy to take that phone call right now. It's futile because it doesn't change what's going to happen. Which is that you will die, and at some point in the end, there will be a general resurrection, both of the just and the unjust. And those who have believed in Christ Jesus will be raised to life everlasting. And those who have persisted in unbelief will be raised only to an eternal damnation and destruction. And so it's both absurd and futile to put off Jesus in entire and in utter unbelief in order to maintain the status quo. I would encourage any unbeliever, every unbeliever within earshot, whether here in person, whether online, consider that you cannot maintain the status quo forever. It's absurd to try to come to death and navigate death without the one who, in our passage, calls forth a man from the tomb. That's absurd. It's also futile to just think that you can just go on living forever as if death, heaven, hell are not realities. It makes no sense. It's like acting as if Monday morning is not going to come. It's like acting as if your flight home isn't going to happen. That date on the calendar will never be here. We might not like to think about it, but all of these things are bearing down on us. And so deal with Jesus, unbeliever, in the first place. Believe. To disbelieve is both absurd and futile. Now, here's the other sub-point. So believe is really the only application. Believe in the first place if you're outside of Christ. If you're already in Christ Jesus, here's the other sub-point. Still believe. But, but recognize that the nature of the Christian faith <clears throat> is that your life will be disrupted. The nature of what it looks like to believe in Jesus is that your life will be disrupted. The Sanhedrin wanted to maintain the status quo. <clears throat> now, imagine if Caiaphas stood up in his arrogance with his cutting words, his aggressive approach to his peers. You know nothing. And advocated for Jesus' death. And someone stood up and said, well, actually, I think he is the Messiah. I think the scriptures are quite plain about this. If you just turn back Caiaphas to Isaiah 53, if you just turn back Caiaphas to Genesis 12, if you just turn back Caiaphas to Ezekiel 34, you know, I think we are the shepherds that are fattening ourselves off the flock. And I think that it seems that he actually is the shepherd that God promised who would come and tend to the flock in righteousness, who would actually bind up the injured then, who would seek the lost. Look at the contrast between how we deal with the people and how he does. He has compassion on them as if they're sheep without a shepherd. You know, I'm convicted by all this that I'm wrong. 
and that you're wrong, and that we're wrong, and that we're sinners, and that we need Jesus. I just want you to use your sanctified imagination about how that would go. You see that to take the side of Jesus, to believe in Jesus, actually, it impacts the way that we live, the things we say, the side that we come down on in discussions and debates, the perspective we take on various issues. And it ends up being disruptive to our lives. If you want to maintain the status quo, don't believe in Jesus. But if you believe in Jesus, the other side of that coin is that it's not going to maintain the status quo. It is going to be disruptive. So what I would like to press on you, Christian, is to embrace the disruptiveness of Jesus in your life. And to recognize that believing is going to lead you to new ways of thinking, new ways of speaking, new ways of acting, new priorities, new values. And I would suggest to you that if your life has not been being disrupted over the last year, for example, sometimes it's hard to see. You know, I, I often say you can't, sanctification is like you can't just look back and see, am I holier than I was on Tuesday? It doesn't work like that. You can't see it that obviously in the short term. But if we look over a longer term, we can see, yes, I've grown in holiness. I think it's the same with this dynamic of disruption. We might not be able, we might be able to, but we might not be able to look back and see, how has my life been disrupted since Tuesday on account of following Jesus? But I would suggest that if your life has not been disrupted by following Jesus over the last year or over the last five years, you're probably not following Jesus very well. You're probably stagnating in your Christian growth. As we learn to follow Jesus better and better, it brings us into increasing tension with the world, which in John's usage is the ungodly system, the ungodly culture around us with very different values, very different priorities, very different ways of thinking and speaking and acting. As we learn to follow Jesus better and better, we're going to find that we are more and more what Peter calls strangers and exiles here on this earth. So I would urge you, Christian, to embrace the disruptiveness. It's not trying to make ourselves weird and strange for the sake of being weird and strange. I have often wondered that I find especially in like youth sermons and stuff like this, this idea of being different. But it comes out in sermons for us grown-ups too. When you hear about separation, consecration, etc. Obviously I agree with all of those things in principle. But sometimes it comes off like we need to just be different for the sake of being different. Like, you know, everyone in the world is wearing a blue shirt, so why don't we put on red shirts? You know, everyone in the world, you know, wakes up at 6 o'clock, so why don't we wake up at 6.01? You 
And there's sort of this like being different for the sake of being different, which is pushed on us. When I say embrace the disruptiveness that comes from believing in Jesus, I don't mean just go be different for the sake of being different. But just go disrupt your neighborhood and disrupt your family and disrupt your friends just for the sake of it because you're a follower of Jesus. That's not at all what I mean. But in this passage, we see people confronted with a fork in the road where believing in Jesus has certain implications and not believing in Jesus has a different set of implications. And what we find as we make our way through life is that God in His providence brings us to forks in the road where following Jesus looks like something and not following Jesus looks like something. Where believing in Jesus looks like something. Where not believing in Jesus looks like something. And so I would just press on you to just embrace that even if it disrupts the status quo, even if it costs you, believe in Jesus. Follow Jesus. The holier we get, and the more ungodly our culture gets, the more of these forks in the roads we're going to come to. Prepare yourself in advance. Pre-decide as you come to those forks in the road. I will follow Jesus. Predecide, even if I have to lose my job. And in the secular, rapidly secularizing West, that's going to happen more and more in the days ahead. Even if it means certain careers are closed to me. Even if it means certain relationships are going to suffer. Even if it means other forms of loss. Whatever it costs us, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather be on His side when the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Put me on His holy hill with Him. The Lord who sits in the heavens and laughs says, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. You, Christian, predecide. I want to be there on that holy hill with the king the Lord has set in Zion. Pick your team and embrace the disruption that that causes. So non-Christian and Christian alike, don't let the disruptiveness of Jesus keep you from belief. Believe in the first place and keep on believing. It's absurd and it's futile not to.